Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Laura Reese, and I am the Senior Research Fellow for Homeland Security at the Heritage Foundation. It is my pleasure to be hosting today's event, The Enemy Within, the Security Risks of U.S. Law Enforcement's Use of Chinese Drones. Before we dive in, I wanted to give a few housekeeping items. I'd like to remind you that we want you to be part of the conversation. Please submit your questions throughout the event in the questions box. Be sure to tell us your name, your affiliation, where you're, and where you're turning in, tuning in from. We'll get to as many questions as possible, and uh, we will be sharing the recording of today's conversation with you following the event. And finally, everyone is currently on mute. Now let's turn to the event. The use of commercial drones in the US is exploding. And according to the Federal Aviation Administration, there were fewer than 50,000 commercial drones in operation at the end of 2016. Today, there are more than 385,000 such drones. And the FAA forecasts the commercial fleet to grow over to, to, grow to over 835,000 by 2023, which is an average annual growth rate of 25%. And as a market, it will be worth over $129 billion by 2025. Most of the drones in the market is comprised of Chinese manufactured drones, which carry security risks. While federal agencies have distanced themselves from Chinese-made drones, state and local law enforcement agencies certainly use them, which raises infrastructure risks and concerns, among others. We have a great program lined up for you today, and I'm delighted to tell you a bit about our speakers. First, we have the Honorable Ellen Lord joining us from the Defense Department, where she is the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. In this capacity, she is responsible to the Secretary of Defense for all matters pertaining to acquisition and sustainment, and works closely with all of the service departments and military agencies. Prior to this appointment, Ms. Lord served as the President and Chief Executive Officer of Textron Systems, Corporation and has more than 30 years of experience in the defense industry. Ms. Lord is a former vice chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association. Following Undersecretary Lord, we have a panel of three speakers. They are Brendan Groves, who's the head of regulatory and policy affairs at Skydio, the largest U.S. drone manufacturer. Before join joining Skydio, Brendan served most recently as the Associate Deputy Attorney General in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he managed DOJ's National Security Policy Portfolio and developed and led DOJ's aircraft drone program. As a, a member of the FAA's Executive Committee on Unmanned Aircraft Systems, or UAS, Brendan shaped the government's approach to integrating drones into the national airspace and led the effort to counter the threat posed by malicious drones. Brendan also served as special counsel to the general counsel of the NSA, and he began his career as an Air Force JAG officer. He's a graduate of Yale Law School and Pepperdine University. Second, we have Art Mogul, who recent, re recently retired as lieutenant from the New York City Police Department, where he served for nearly 23 years. There, he participated as an advisor on the FAA's drone and counter UAS committees. Art conducted research, development, test, and evaluation of emerging technologies, developed programs to detect, deter, and mitigate unmanned aircraft systems attacks, and he worked jointly with federal and DOD partners on the counter UAS security operations for special events in New York City. He currently serves in the U.S. Army Reserves. He's received the Bronze Star, and he has a Bachelor of Science degree from New York University's Stern School of Business. And finally, my colleague and co-author of the report, Chinese Made Drones, a direct threat whose use should be curtailed is JV Venable. JV is a senior research fellow for defense policy at the Homeland, excuse me, at the Heritage Foundation, where he focuses on air and space issues. 
He's a 25-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force. He's served in three combat operations, served at 16 locations around the world as a forward air controller, fighter pilot, staff officer, and commander. And he's the former commander of the celebrated Thunderbirds. He received a bachelor's degree in business management from Ohio University, where he was also a distinguished graduate of the Air Force ROTC. He holds a master's degree in aeronautical sciences from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and in strategic studies from the Air War College. Now I'd like to invite Undersecretary Lord to join me on camera to give her remarks and then I will follow up with a few questions. Mrs. Lord, over to you. Good afternoon and thank you for the introduction, Laura, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for arranging this virtual session. I'm really delighted to be part of today's event and read with interest the background paper on Chinese-made drones. This is really a significant opportunity this afternoon to share the Department of Defense's views on global small unmanned aircraft systems, the market as well as cybersecurity impacts associated with each of these systems. And I'm especially eager to highlight that that we have um, within DOD identified, designed a blue or friendly for US and allies UAS architecture. And I'd like to talk a little bit about how we're trying to strengthen the security and resilience of the defense industrial base or the DIB for small UAS. So the problem as I see it is that the People's Republic of China dominates the global market for small UAS. Specifically, a single Chinese company, DJI, has maintained a monopoly in UAS manufacturing with around 77% of the small UAS market share. Intel follows far behind DJI with only 3.7% of the market. For small UAS technology in the $1,000 to $2,000 price segment, DJI's market share is even higher at approximately 86%. The small UAS market will continue to grow, and it's estimated that the industry will be worth $43 billion by 2024. We know that the volume of Chinese small UAS exports will continue to increase unless there's a shift in Chinese dominance in the market share. Furthermore, we are extremely concerned about data exfiltration from these Chinese UAS. So if we go back, DJI was founded in 2006 and flooded the small UAS market around 2013 with high volume manufacturing and aggressive discount schemes. In 2015, North America's largest consumer drone manufacturer, 3D Robotics, employed more than 350 people. As of today, 3D Robotics market share is 1.5% and employs approximately 110 people, which is less than one third of those they had in the company's workforce in 2015. Within the United States small UAS industrial base, there's high turnover as well as market consolidation. Approximately 67% of UAS startups have been sold since larger UAS companies are buying smaller ones with potential. Some prime examples of this include AeroEnvironment's acquisition of Pulse Aerospace and FLIR Systems acquisition of Arion Labs. Given the increased um, competition and consolidation, startups such as Lilly and Airware, both US companies, are running out of financial resources. Other smaller companies, such as GoPro's Karma and Parrot SA, which is a French company, are unable to compete and are, exec are ex exiting the drone market altogether. So there are three challenges um, leading to this. One is the cost imposing regulations we have in the US. This includes the cost to develop and validate airworthiness obtain certifications, have trained pilots, and to meet all the US standards for UAS operations. 
Also, because DJI has a very established market share, they can incrementally improve what they have. However, the price of entry is very significant for a new startup, first to establish capability field and then continue to invest in that capability, as well as to advertise and to get a customer base that is loyal to them. We also have this rapid turn of technology. And what we are seeing is that DJI has the financial means um, being supported by the Chinese government to continue um, that rapid turnover of technology and being able to keep up with cutting edge in innovations. So we need a robust U.S. market um, that we have U.S developed and manufactured UAS participating in to meet both the commercial as well as the defense demands. We must work together, that's government, industry, financial community, regulatory community, to identify a path forward. We are seeing legislation that is imposing some changes on us. Um, through Section 848 of the FY20 Na National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, Congress set clear rules around foreign-produced UAS, as well as the types of critical UAS components that may be procured and operated. So specifically, the Department of Defense may not operate, enter into, or renew a contract for the procurement of UAS or any related services and equipment that are manufactured in a covered foreign country or by an entity domiciled in a covered foreign country. Now this term covered foreign country most notably includes the People's Republic of China. So what is DOD done? We have a small, a blue UAS program that represents a significant first step towards building a robust and trusted UAS domestic industrial base that really will ensure sustained delivery of highly capable, secure UAS to the warfighters that depend on it. Our blue small UAS program is the culmination of 18 months of work by the Army and the Defense Innovation Unit to tailor the best technology from US and allied companies to develop inexpensive small UAS defined as group one and two UAS, which are under 55 pounds for the warfighter. Due to the work of the blue small UAS program, we are proud to announce the availability of the following five US manufactured drones that provide trusted, secure small UAS options to federal, state and local governments through the General Services Administration or GSA catalog later this month. The first is Altavian M440C. Secondly, Parrot Anafi USA. Third, Skydio X2. Fourth, Teal Golden Eagle. And fifth, Vantage Robotics Vesper. My team will continue to work with the DOD research and engineering team and our industry partners on future blue small UAS projects, as well as programs to support the development of larger and more technologically capable systems that DOD and our nation require to remain competitive and outpace our competitors in this space. So, we have had um, presidential determinations for small UAS signed out by President Trump in 2019, which allows DOD to make investments in small UAS industrial-based companies by using the Defense Production Act, Title III authorities, to one, sustain critical production, two, commercialize R&D investments, and three scale emerging technologies. As part of the national response to COVID-19 and to support the domestic small UAS industrial base, the department awarded $13.4 million in DPA Title III funded contracts to the following five companies. AirMap based in Santa Monica, California, Modal AI in San Diego, California, Skydia in Redwood City, California, 
Graffiti Enterprises out of Somerset, New Jersey, and Obsidian Sensors in San Diego. So before closing, I'd just like to comment on one of the ways that our department is looking at investing in this defense industrial base segment. We have a program called Trusted Capital, where we are developing an ecosystem, an electronic marketplace to bring together key small innovative companies with the capital market providers um, in order to invest in the ecosystem. We had a drone venture day back in November 2019. We had 39 UAS companies, 12 trusted capital providers, and we are building on that activity to make sure that we have both a safe and resilient industrial base for small UAS. UAS technologies really have incredible promise and potential to not only provide great economic benefit for the American people, but also to enhance the safety and security of our nation. Once again, we need a strong, resilient, secure, domestic UAS manufacturing base to make sure that America leads in this critical field. So, um, with that, I'll turn it back to you, Laura. Thank you. Thank you, Undersecretary Lord. And I just have one question for you because I, I really want to thank you for your very thorough remarks. It's clear that the Defense Department is absolutely leading in this drone issue and, and looking to develop a, a U.S.-based market. So federal agencies have, have raised red flags regarding Chinese-made drones, uh, but state and local agencies continue to use them. Uh, their budgets are smaller than federal governments. So what advice would you give to state and local procurement specialists regarding purchasing drones, particularly when they have smaller budgets than the federal government? Absolutely. A few things. One, state and local governments can come to our industrial policy team within acquisition and sustainment in DOD and use us as a help desk for this. They will point you to the correct people. But secondly, we will now have these small, safe-to-use drones on the GSA list, which is much, much easier for them to use. I would very much like to continue what our team has done in terms of using industry associations, different groups to help listen to problems out there and deliver solutions. So I'm going to task my team after today to find out what is the most effective, speedy way to get to these local and state government officials who do have the procurement responsibility so they can most efficiently and effectively use the taxpayer dollars. Thank you very much. So at this point, I will invite the panelists come, to come on and to turn their cameras on. And Undersecretary Lord, you are welcome to turn your camera off. And again, thank you for your comments and, and the valuable information. Thank you. All right, turning now to uh, the panelists, let's let's dive into some of the technology that's available, the security risks, and uh, what state and local agencies can do uh, in the alternative. Uh, so, JB, I'm going to start with you. Um, could you describe to us uh, what current technology is available in the in drones, and what can we expect over the next five years? Well, Laura, thank you for the question. Um, the drone technology right now is really exploding. Uh, if you look at the capabilities that are fielded uh, currently on DJI drones and across the market, um, the optics are absolutely stellar and their payloads are, are growing more and more larger and, and more effective, as is the battery life. Or you're looking at uh, battery life in excess of 30 minutes right now to provide some really phenomenal capabilities. And these optics that we're talking about on cameras that uh, can capture uh, high quality uh, footage and the zoom capability is on the, uh, it exceeds oftentimes 30 times optical. And then when you go into the digital aspects, you get up to an, uh, a zoom capability of 180 times. You couple that with scene stabilization and the pictures that are coming out of these drones are just phenomenal. And they actually are of such a quality, they allow facial recognition. Um, the Communist Party of China is the master of this uh, technology. They've got it employed across uh, their, their nation. 
And while we don't really know the, the fundamental aspects of those systems, we believe that they're on a par with what is being fielded here in the States, if not a little bit better. Last year, a company uh, called Clearview went public and, and they have the capability to take a cell phone photograph that you take right now and actually capture the image of someone in the background and identify the name of that individual in less than half a second using a database that goes across social media uh, fielding um, through AI, uh, looking at a billion or more photographs and coming up with the right ID. And so if you look at that, it allows governments to come in and actually see who is in what crowd and, and make some really positive or uh, somewhat detrimental uh, Im implications with regard to um, personal security. The, the capabilities beyond are, are really hard to fathom for many Americans, but you're, you're starting to see RF-based payloads uh, that have Wi-Fi tracking capabilities and the ability to actually capture those networks um, and penetrate them. And when you do that, you start to be able to steal secrets, not just military secrets, but to crack into corporations and then law enforcement agencies to pilfer their secrets. With miniaturization, um, the, the capabilities you're now seeing on large drones will actually migrate into medium size and on down into small drones over the next five years. And it'll be eye-watering what we see over the next 10. So on that, Brendan, can you um, talk a little bit about how well does the U.S. market compete with those capabilities and what do you think is going to be on the technological horizon for small drones? Right. Thanks, Laura. So if we step back, I think you can map the evolution of the drone industry into three broad phases. The first was the age of toys. That's how most of the small drones began, as toys that you flew in your backyard, they were radio controlled. DJI and other manufacturers pioneered manually defined devices that were really pieces of hardware and they represented notable advances, but they still required expert pilots to fly. They were easy to crash um, and you need a sophisticated user base to do any type of commercially valuable work. And right now, roughly companies in, in public safety agencies spend roughly 80% of their budgets on the salaries of pilots and training. I know that because I oversaw one of the largest public safety programs in the world at the U.S. Department of Justice. So what's interesting is that we're now seeing a shift into this third phase. This is seismic shift. It's the transition from manually flown devices to software defined devices that are sleek and elegant and intuitive and intensely capable. These are devices that are built from the ground up to fly themselves. And they're also built from the ground up for security, which is something else that we didn't see in that second phase that were manually defined devices. So the best analogy I can give is, is, is to think back to the Nokia flip phone. Um, probably almost all of us listening used to have a Nokia phone in our pocket. They worked pretty well at the time. I remember being very happy um, with it until I saw the Apple iPhone for the first time. And when you pick that up, it's this incredibly intuitive, capable, software-defined experience. It's no accident that Nokia was a foreign company producing cheap commodity hardware, and Apple was an American company, a software company that built hardware to accentuate the software, not the other way around. We're seeing that same shift play out in the drone industry around the world, where now you have new solutions, and Skydio was on the leading edge here, but there are others, new solutions that are, again, built from the ground up for autonomy and security. And those are the solutions that will define the future of, of unmanned flight and, and make drones much more capable, taking them from tools, what they are today, to teammates. Um, that's happening already around the world. Art, why do you think Chinese-made drones are so dominant? I'll give you multiple reasons. First of all, I would like to thank the uh, Heritage Foundation for inviting me and particularly the uh, talk by Undersecretary uh, Lord. Uh, it would have been nice to have that uh, access when I'm still with the police department, but I'm still uh, doing that work in my reserve capacity. So maybe we can uh, trade phone numbers or communication and we can get some of that information to some of the state and locals. So I'm, I'm gonna give you some of uh, a little history. Uh, so I started looking into uh, UAS systems for the police department probably back in 2011, 2012. Back then, you had uh, hardly anything available. I remember going down 
the way you had to find out what was available is you'd go to the trade sh shows like by AUVSI or speak to other law enforcement agencies. So back in 2011 and 12, uh, Miami-Dade was one of the first uh, law enforcement agencies to make the foray into it. So myself and one of my other officers went down there uh, to look at their program and how it was operating. Uh, back then too, the, the climate was such that it was almost impossible to be able to get a COA to operate uh, a drone, you know, for any usable way for law enforcement. And I will say since that period of time, everything eased up from the federal regulatory standpoint in terms of using a drone where now it is usable. But getting back down to Florida, I looked at their system. One, they were still on a uh, kind of a test COA before they could actually prove that they could use this thing. And it was like a flying, they used to call it the flying uh, vacuum cleaner. This thing was huge, it was noisy, it weighed a lot, it was not maneuverable, and it, it just wasn't usable for most law enforcement or first responder applications. So what happened, the, the, especially the Chinese had been using uh, UAS systems for commercial applications, and they were far ahead of a lot of what we had from a commercial standpoint technologically. So they came to the US and they offered the first responders with, I had to say it, a very good product. Uh, it was inexpensive, it was readily available, uh, it was easy to operate, they had a good marketing campaign and distribution campaign. You can go to your local, uh, you know, JNR, whatever your local store was, pick it up. And, you know, recently they've even provided as part of the marketing campaign to give free UAS systems first responders for COVID response. And, and their customer uh, service was phenomenal. Uh, so with law enforcement having the ability to purchase a system that was more expensive that the military is testing versus something that was easily accessible that actually can meet all their immediate needs, that was the, the way they went that way. It was affordable, easy to use, and it was great for law enforcement uh, applications. So affordable, easy to use, that's tough to compete with. Um, Brendan, can you talk a little bit about why it's been uh, difficult for US companies to compete in the past? Sure, so I, a couple of factors come to mind. And, and the first is that as a variety of US government officials have made clear over the years, U.S. companies in the past were competing with one hand tied behind their back. U.S. companies have always welcomed competition. Um, certainly, Skydio and other members of the domestic drone industry welcome competition. That's what we want. But our predecessors that stepped into the ring that is the marketplace expected a fair fight, and they didn't find it because the Chinese government was committed to not playing fair, to not playing by the rules. And Ms. Lord and others have discussed how in the past, the Chinese government was able to sponsor price dumping. Um, and I'm speaking here with my hat on as a former US government official as well as a cybersecurity professor. So the Chinese government was essentially working with companies to lower the prices on the market. This is again, according to the US government, which harmed predecessor companies here in the United States. And in the, the second reason is, is that in the past, the domestic drone industry focused primarily on beating Chinese incumbents at their own game, producing commodity hardware products. That didn't go well for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that the Chinese government, according to this month's edition of the Harvard Business Review, has invested billions of dollars in 20 years in making Shenzhen, China, a global hub for the manufacturing of components useful for both phones, drones, and other forms of microelectronics. There is nothing like that in the United States, which gives companies based in, in China, and it's no surprise that most of the drone companies in China are based in Shenzhen. That gives them an advantage in the hardware game. But what we're now seeing is a shift. America's core competency has always been in and around software. And as I mentioned earlier, that is the paradigm that will define the future of the marketplace that already is today. And it will certainly enable new capabilities. Um, and I think uniquely benefit the United States and the domestic drone industry in a way that was very different from the industry of the past. It was again, focused on making hardware components, trying to play the same game. Thank you. So one issue that people raise, users raise uh, for uh, using a Chinese drone is a concern that data is going to be shared 
with the Chinese corporation and therefore in turn the Chinese government. If you look at DJI's fact sheet, for example, it talks about if a user voluntarily shares data with DJI, it's stored in the US and that any flight data that US customers choose to share with DJI, it's stored on a secure cloud located in the US, uh, for example, Amazon um, and Alibaba, which are certified ISO compliant. Art, do you think, does this alleviate data sharing concerns or are there still concerns to be had about data sharing? Of course, every security measure you take or security assurance you take is provides a little bit of help, but by no means does that give you assurances. So first of all, like it, you know, I don't want to, you know, single out any single company, but for example, DJI, just to be able to operate that, you're signing an end user agreement and immediately off the bat, you're sharing a certain amount of your information you're agreeing to uh, right away. And it says upfront in the end user agreement that you have to do to operate it. But anything that, uh, you know, is an open network is going to be open to, uh, you know, hacking, uh, to security threats. Uh, and for a local public service agency, you have to say, first of all, am I protecting myself the best way I can? Okay, it's the best product or at that time but is it gonna to touch my server? Okay, assume anything that you're gonna to touch your server, whether they're saying it's secure or not, you're at risk too. Uh, any imagery that you take is tagged with GPS coordinates. So something taking uh, that you're flying that you think is benign, suddenly, uh, you know, who else knows where you're at and who's recording it? So if I'm in a hostage negotiating uh, system, and even if it's not touching my server and I'm having an open broadcast to look at my film, who has access to that? Or a protest, hey, uh, somebody is observing where law enforcement is staged for security reasons. Who else can pull in any of your feeds, whether it's on your server or not? The other thing is too, uh, with any network, they can download cookies. You have persistent cookies that are there and can be hidden, come out at any time. You have to worry about, okay, it's not touching my network, but now I want to do a security upgrade. Uh, you know, if you look at your phone, it will, you could have GPS mode off, but it'll constantly say every time you use an app, hey, can do, will you be willing to turn your GPS on for this? And then as soon as you do that, people have access to it. So these are all little hidden things that you have to be concerned on, even if you think you have a secure network. And the bottom line is any Chinese company uh, is bound by the 2017 Chinese uh, intelligence agreement, which requires them to provide any intelligence deemed necessary by the Chinese government. So they may try to do their best to uh, secure it, but if a you know totalitarian government suddenly decides I need that information, they will be powerless basically to uh, stop it. Uh, the other thing is too, what other you know, companies are providing uh, components into that device. So as NYPD, we, I personally use a device that was a DJI product. Uh, it was more for detection. And to be able to operate it, we needed to actually use a Huawei SIM card. We tried using a Verizon or, uh, you know, AT&T SIM card. It never seemed to work. So what other components are in there that can leave your your system vulnerable to some kind of cyber attack or pulling out information. So question for, for Brendan and also then JV. So people don't worry too much about cybersecurity, unfortunately, until they're hacked. So is it realistic to think that drone operators will go through the steps to turn off sharing settings each time they fly a drone? And I'm wondering about emergency situations where drone pilots have to get the devices up into the air very quickly. How long does it take to go through these steps to avoid sharing data? And is the user still vulnerable? Right, that's a great question. And to answer it, let me put on my professorial hat. I teach cybersecurity law and policy at George Washington Law School, um, in addition to serving in a variety of cybersecurity roles. So the first thing I would say is that completely disconnecting any device that's meant to be connected to the internet is inherently difficult, oftentimes impossible. If a device is built to be connected to the internet, that's how it works best. And in, in cybersecurity, you can't bolt it on. 
cyber cyber devices to be secure, they have to be built from the ground up for security. And whenever you disconnect a device from the internet, especially a device that's made to be connected to the internet, you lose a lot of the richness and the utility. You may also lose a lot of safety features. So if you have a device, whether it's a telephone or a toaster or a Tesla, that is meant to be connected to the internet to get real-time maps, to get traffic information. And by the way, all of those apply in the airspace, not just on the ground. Imagine what you're gonna lack if you shut that off, if you close that pipe. You're not gonna have awareness, you're gonna be flying blind in a very literal way. But it, more particularly, there are sort of three levels of risk that we can jump through really quickly here maybe. And, and the, the first is that when you think you have air-gapped a device, you may not have actually done so. Um, air-gapping a device is inherently tricky it takes an extraordinary amount of resources to pull off and it often doesn't work. That's especially the case, again, according to the US government um, and with my professorial hat on, if you're using a product by a vendor that cannot be trusted. And in this case, the issue is the Chinese government. The issue isn't really about Chinese companies, it's really about the boogeyman at the end of the rainbow holding the rope and that is the Chinese government. With those laws that are talked about, there are two others, it require Chinese companies to comply with these laws. Those laws have rightly caused bipartisan concern in the Congress, um, in boardrooms across the world, um, and, and also in the executive branch. And, and the, the second reason I would say that there's a risk from air gap machines is, is a mistake. It just takes one employee one time to connect a device to the internet, even to his or her personal mobile device, and then all bets are off that device is no longer air gap. And the third and most serious probably category of risk that I've certainly seen firsthand is in the form of software updates. So even if you had a device in pristine condition, it was not connected to the internet, you were sure it was secure. That device is not meant to remain in stasis. It requires updates. You're going to need to patch it. You're going to want more features. But if a device is truly air gap, the only way to add features to update it is to trust the vendor that writes the update. So therein lies a potential vulnerability, a threat actor could and will exploit is whenever you update that software and you must, um, that is an angle, that's another opportunity for you to be exploited. JV? Yeah, I, just to follow on to Brendan's comments there, uh, DHS put out a document last year on best practices on using drones, particularly those manufactured uh, in, in China. And in order to follow those, it makes it basically uh, unusable for the average uh, person who's out there on the street. Um, the restrictions on using controllers and PCs connecting to the internet, as, as Brendan said, it only takes one mistake and going through this checklist is almost Byzantine. Um, if you wanna go and follow the, the, the idea that D, DJI, for example, uh, is a secure and, uh, and easy to use system. I, I recommend you go on YouTube and, and follow a link to, uh, to find Brendan Schulman's testimony. Uh, he's a senior DJI representative and he testified in front of uh, the British parliament last year. And if you can find a yes or no answer in that eight minute testimony, you're a better man or woman than I am. And, and I, I recommend that you go through and, and if you walk away with anything other than a head scratcher, then then, then, um, then you're again uh, doing well. And let me go down the path that uh, that Brendan did just for a second. Uh, this idea that you've got a, a trusted actor is one thing, but the Chinese government is anything but. Uh, there are some great Americans working for DJI here in the United States, but they work for a company that's based in China. As uh, Brendan and Art both referenced. Um, law makes it mandatory for corporations based to share the data with that company uh, that the company collects with the, the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And, and their uh, record uh, is, is absolutely blight filled with uh, being a bad actor. Um, if you just look at how they've uh, provided ships manufactured in China for the last um, five years, um, in 2018, Bloomberg came out with a study that, that basically a, a report that showed that the United States was going through a TS investigation, a top secret investigation on a chip manufacturer named Supermicro, who had built a chip that otherwise was great. And this company was probably up, 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 uh, up board and sound, but 
the Chinese Communist Party got a hold of that and put another very tiny chip inside of it that gave, uh, provided a backdoor of the Chinese government to come in and intrude in, in um, uh, systems that had been uh, placed in, in government organizations like DOD and corporations like Apple, um, and it allowed them access to directly into their servers. Now, I'm going to have Catherine um, uh, throw up a video here for you, and I'll talk over the top of it. There's no sound, but what the Chinese government does is markedly different than what we do in the United States and what our government does. This is a video taken by a DJI drone over the top of a Uyghur uh, group of folks who have been basically um, detained and are being moved by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, from one location on this train depot to another. And what they're doing to the Uyghurs is on the order of what we, we saw out of Nazi Germany in World War II with the Jewish population. And you're seeing them move those folks back around this, this country, this, this uh, Chinese Communist Party is a, a known bad actor. If you look at the fidelity that's offered in here, and we'll play this video one more time for you, you can actually see details on people's hands and the likes where facial recognition and, and, and the ability to determine who people are, track, trace, and then detain them if you so wish is, is there for the taking. So what you're seeing is a, an extraordinary technology uh, of a company that is based in China. And what they're doing with that, that technology, not just to DJI potentially, but to uh, law enforcement agencies across the United States, it's something to absolutely scour over. And if, you, if you're not concerned with this kind of imagery being, being um, of, made available to that communist party, and that images may be coming from your town, and RF data and Wi-Fi signals and, and the security details of your very own population. If you're not concerned with that, then you need to think twice. Agreed, yeah, the two things that video shows is one, human rights violations, and two, incredible technology. Um, let's turn now to focus on state and local agencies. So Art, a question for you. If, if federal agencies have, have stopped using or acquiring Chinese-made drones, should, should state and local agencies follow suit and stop using them as well, or is that even feasible? No, I think it is feasible. Uh, so every agency has to look at what their own needs are and what's you know readily available and uh, what they can afford, what they can use. Uh, you know, but if a federal agency is skeptical, and I know in 2017, uh, you know, the Department of the Army actually prohibited the use of uh, the Chinese-made drones, particularly DJI, you've got to say to yourself, why is that? And they can put in all sorts of security patches in, into play. So, you know, you have to say to yourself, do you have a, can you even handle that uh, Chinese system? Do you have your own secure network? Can you protect that secure network? Uh, will that UAS touch a, a secure network? Even if you have a separate network and you're doing any kind of updates on your computer, will that computer that you use just for this touch your network? So yeah, no, I, I think uh, state and locals definitely need to look introspectively and say, what are my other choices out there? Do I, even if I don't think there's any concern, hey, maybe there is. Stuff that I think is not critical, whether it be infrastructure uh, that you're looking at at bridges and tunnels. Uh, in New York City, we actually had uh, uh, in our power supply companies that were finding drones all over the place. So yes, if there's alternatives out there, uh, state and locals need to look at the alternatives. So in speaking to a firefighter and a drone operator in, in Georgia, he said, yes, we need to know what the risks are. And federal government, if you're, if you're going to provide us that information and the risks, also help provide possible solutions or, or point us to such solutions. So, Brendan, in your time at DOJ, what was your experience with uh, working with state and local law enforcement agencies regarding drones? And how can they most quickly and easily get to solutions. Right. Well, there's no question, first of all, that drones are just fundamentally extraordinary tools. 
and that advance not only the safety of the public, but also the safety of frontline personnel, officers and state and local agencies and agents in federal agencies. Um, so that's that's a critical tool. Agencies need it. Um, and like Art said, there are lots of other alternatives in the market today, uh, both in the United States and allied countries that are meeting those needs um, at a greater level than they before. When I was at the, the Department of Justice, I worked with an office in the Department of Justice, uh, the COPS office, the Community Oriented Policing Services office. This is an office that is well known to many agencies out there. And we stood up the first of a kind national UAS working group. Art was actually on this. And we got together chiefs of police and very senior law enforcement officials from across the country, flew everybody to DC on a regular basis and talked through these issues face to face, walked through the needs in the community and also the risk people were facing, talked about consensus solutions to work around them. And DOJ and DHS actually provide grant money to state and local agencies to help them get the absolute best technology that's also cyber secure. And that's an important factor. Both DOJ and DHS have restrictions on cybersecurity for any grants, including for drones. Um, that's important, that's as it should be. But that's a resource right now, in addition to the resource that Ms. Lord shared in the Defense Department that every state and local agency can use, is those that grant money from DOJ and DHS to ensure you have the solutions you need that aren't gonna put your networks at risk. So a question that came in from the audience, um, says the DOD program needs to be more visible. Is there a benefit to working with a military installation? Um, all three of you have military backgrounds. So um, JV, do you wanna start with that yeah. question? I can, Laura. Um, making, if you don't already have a relationship with a, your local base or installation, it's kind of hard to go knocking on the door and find find uh, that person who's willing to talk to you. It may be best to go through a representative who gets you access in and makes that introduction for you. And yeah, you're going to find extraordinary talent inside of DOD. They do know the ins and outs of these systems. Um, but whether they'll be able to help you with your individual security, that's another matter entirely. Brendan, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's. I think it's a very good question. Your first best bet is probably to call Ms. Lord's office and have that sort of top-down access into the Department of Defense. But I think it's an extraordinary thing that DOD is going to partner alongside our state and local agencies and help them wade through these really difficult um, and confusing waters on their own, as well as provide the solutions that they've they've needed. So again, fantastic from, from DOD, but I would advise folks to reach out to the Pentagon for their initial call. And Art, what are your thoughts? So when I was in the police department, also having a military background and continuing in a reserve capacity, I kind of acted as a liaison between kind of all the agencies that had kind of their foot in, you know, the door for UAS and county US programs. So we worked very closely with Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we worked with DOJ. We worked with the FAA and very closely with the military. So right now I'm actually working on a program with uh, the police department uh, and the military to actually kind of train them on best of class systems. So the DOD has been a phenomenal partner in this game. And uh, I've actually proposed to my leadership, I'm with the 75th Innovation Command, that we actually almost act as a liaison to big uh, DOD, big army, to go to state and locals and get them this additional support and this information. Uh, you know, PERF and DOJ and DHS and FAA has been phenomenal, but the people that have the money are the military and they're investing a lot on the future of both, you know, UAS technology and county UAS technology. All right, thank you. So our time is wrapping up. I just wanna go around the horn for any final comments or, or general thoughts. JV, I'll start with you and then Art followed by Brendan. Yeah, there's some phenomenal technology out there, and you want to use it for your departments, uh, be you a sheriff or be you a, um, a police agency in any city in the United States. These are phenomenal capabilities, and you want to start that integration if you haven't already. But buyer beware. This is one of those areas where if you dip into this and you don't go down the right path with regard to your selection on who manufactures that drone and where that data could potentially go, then you're not shielding your people or your organization. Thanks, JV. Art? 
So I just want to say there's a lot of choices out there, a lot more opening up. Uh, you know, I would also implore that uh, the Fed, where the DHS and DOJ actually released more reports on approved technologies, approved systems, but also recommended, and I did that when I was part of the PERP program, uh, there should be like federal uh, training programs because the cost of operating is not just the acquisition of the UAS system itself. It's also the maintenance, it's the training, uh, all these other little things really add up to make it prohibitive. So maybe if the federal government could come up with a UAS training program to help state and locals with getting their people, you know, 107 certified, uh, understanding the Part 91 process for COAs, I, I think would also help going a long way to getting a unified approach across the country. Thank you, Art. And Brendan? So I would just say that at the end of the day, everything comes down to trust. I think customers, both consumers, um, public entities and private companies have been conditioned over the years to use drones where they don't even expect cybersecurity as a baseline. And something's wrong with that equation. I think folks deserve more, they're demanding more, and increasingly there are a lot of options that, that get you that, both, both here and some allied options as well, as Ms. Lord mentioned. And at the end of the day, the only way to trust a product is to trust the entity that wrote the software and the legal framework in which they operate. And the way to do that is to use systems produced domestically and in allied countries that will get the trust that everyone has been waiting for but never found. Thank you, Brandon. So I, I'd like to thank all of our speakers uh, for sharing their insights on the risks involved with Chinese-made drones and thank our audience for being with us today for this important conversation. And if you work on the Hill at a think tank or just have questions, we encourage you to contact any one of us here uh, listed on the slide on the screen and um, continue the conversation. Um, just a reminder for the audience, this has been recorded and it will be available at heritage.org along with uh, other webinar information. And immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so that we can bring ideas to you that you care about uh, and, and bring them to the public square. So to see the events that we have coming up, also check out heritage.org events. And again, thank you and have a great day.